0: I would ask that you please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 11 this morning. Do you struggle with doubts? Christian. Do you find yourself questioning God? Maybe this is you. I'll never be rid of this sin. The sin I commit again and again and again. I don't want to, but I do. And you just sit in a cloud of condemnation, pummeled by waves of doubt, teetering back and forth. Am I am I even saved? Or maybe the demands of life, the feeling of failing at your station, the chronic illness that's overtaken your body, maybe for years, and you just feel the crushing weight of the inability to change anything. The deep frustration of hopelessness and hope is just an absent reality. And you doubt God's goodness to you. Maybe the question that overwhelms your mind is, how will it be at the end Is heaven even real? Am I really going there? Whether this is you now or if you just see it in those around you, do we not all struggle with doubts? Is not the fight of faith for the Christian marked by a continuous struggle to believe all that God has promised to be for us in Christ? Is it not true... That Christians sway from seasons of greater and lesser assurance? Where are you right now? Our doubts confirm something that is true of each one of us. Our bodies are dead because of sin. Spiritually and physically, we all know this. We see it, we feel it, we live it. Tangled thoughts. Utter weakness, bodies that are decaying. This is a reality for every son and daughter of Adam inherited from the time you came into this world. But, Christian, though it is true that you will sin in this life, that suffering will come, and death will find you, what is simultaneously true for you, what God has guaranteed you is supremely true, Glorious. So I invite you now, if you're able, please stand with me. As we read Romans 8, 9 through 11, this is God's Word. Place ourselves under it now. We read it like no other book. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Heavenly Father, one thing I ask, and this we seek after right now, we want to gaze upon your beauty, we want to behold wondrous things about you. Thank you for your word, thank you for this word that you give to us. That our joy may be in you and that our joy may be full. And so we ask now. We, we need your help. We need your spirit to open the eyes of our hearts so that what we see is glorious to us. So that what we hear takes root and bears fruit. These are things that we cannot do in our flesh. We need you. Father, I, I need you. I feel Feel my need for you now. Who is sufficient for this? So thank you. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the strength that you faithfully, freely supply. Would it get work done in us so that all that happens now would be for the honor and the praise of your name. The name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The hope that Paul holds out for the Christian in Romans 8, 9 through 11 is that even though you live in bodies with remaining sin, bodies that are day by day decaying unto death, there are greater realities that are true for the Christian. Five times in these three verses, the Apostle Paul refers to the third person of the Trinity, In verse 9, he calls him the Spirit. In verse 9 again, the Spirit of God. In verse 9, he refers to him as the Spirit of Christ. In verse 10, he says, Christ in you. And then in verse 11, he says, his Spirit. Now we should ask, what is the significance of the variation Paul uses to refer to the same person? Is is he talking about the same person? I believe he is, and, and many commentators land on the same answer. These names or terms are interchangeable, meaning they all convey the exact same meaning. Paul is referring to the third person of the Trinity, fully God, yet distinct from the Father, distinct from the Son. And there are many places in the scripture where we can go to argue this, but for this morning, let's just look at a couple. In John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, I will ask the Father to give a helper to you and to be with you forever. And then later, uh, later Jesus says in John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. Thus, we could say that the Spirit is also the Spirit of Christ, and ultimately that the Spirit is both given by the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit is nothing less than the fullness of God. It's why Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that believers would be strengthened through the Spirit so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let that land on you for a second. All that God is, all His power in your fight against sin, all His goodness in your going and in your waiting, all His presence with you every step in life, in you, for you, So what Paul is making clear to us in this text is that the Spirit of God, who is also the Spirit of Christ, is the Spirit who has been given to every Christian. And and know this, what Paul is saying in these verses is not exclusive to a certain type of believer. It's true about every Christian. Remember last week, there is not a spectrum by which we all find ourselves, on fire Christian, lukewarm Christian fearful Christian, suffering Christian. The faithful 30-year pastor does not have something that the teen who came to faith yesterday doesn't have. There are no special groups that receive additional blessings from God. Your Costco membership grants you the same status and benefits as every other member. These are glorious realities that Paul lays out for the believer. They are yours in the Spirit. No matter how you feel, no matter how you fail, this is what God says is true of you. So the first assertion that Paul makes of the Christian is that the Christian is in the Spirit. Verse 9. You, however, Christian, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So what does that mean, to be in the Spirit? Well, Paul makes a clear distinction right away. To be in the Spirit is to not be in the flesh. In the verses just prior to our text, Paul says that there are two categories of people in this world. He reduces it all the way down. There are no other categories that people fall into. There are those who live according to the Spirit, and there are those who live according to the flesh. In the Spirit, in the flesh. Romans 8.5 says, those who live according to the flesh are those who set their minds on the things of the flesh. Minds refers to a mindset, meaning what we prefer and what we live for, what we hope in. The person whose mind is set on the flesh is one that is inclined to self and to the world. It's a preference for life without God. It's a life marked by hostility towards God. No love for Him, only resistance to Him. And Paul says in verse 6, this life is death. It's a life dominated by sin. One that does not submit to God's will. How does Paul sum it up? Those in the flesh cannot obey God. They cannot please God. To be in the flesh is to live a life of bondage and slavery to sin. You, however, Christian, are in the Spirit. Have you ever experienced the school spirit days? Usually it's in high school. It's a planned lineup, spans a week, where staff and students get to dress up uh, to themes that are usually coordinated with special events. It's meant to be fun, and it it does cultivate uh, a certain spirit or mood in the people who experience it and participate in it. To be in the Spirit doesn't just refer to a preference like I'm in the Spirit to sing today or I'm in the mood to read my Bible. The phrase in the Spirit describes the state in which every Christian dwells. It makes a claim of our condition, of our status, and it's a direct opposite of being in the flesh. How God sees believers in the Spirit is a different way in which He saw us before. Once you walked Following the course of this world, we, we read it already this morning, but something happened. Salvation happened. God has delivered you from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred you to the kingdom of his beloved son, Colossians 1.13. Romans 3.24 says, we have been justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To be in the Spirit means to be in Christ. To be in the Spirit means that the Spirit is the domineering factor in your life. Once, that was not true for you. Once your life was marked by death. Now you are marked by life and peace. That's what Paul says in Romans 8.6. He can say life because where there was once a mindset and a trajectory set on death, now there's a life that's not only pleasing to God, but can actually obey Him. In fact, who wants to obey him. And he could say peace because where there was once only hostility towards God, there is now perfect and lasting and satisfying fellowship. And though, Christian, you still live in this world with sin, capable of living like the old man, you now live in the realm of grace. You live in the realm of the Spirit. In the Spirit, your status before God, now and forever, is righteous. Based on nothing you have done, that is God's declaration over you. To be in the Spirit is a glorious reality. It's a state of grace that cannot be overturned, one governed and dominated by the Spirit who leads you. And as Paul says in verse 9, who dwells in you. Again at verse 9, you however are not in the flesh but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Commentators say that if in fact can actually be read assuming that which only strengthens Paul's point more which is that if you are in the realm of the spirit, a state of grace then the spirit of God dwells in you. Have you ever looked at another Christian. Have you ever looked around this room and just been amazed? The Spirit of God dwells in the Christian. Not like we're carrying a thought about God. No, He is here. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. We get we get excited about taking selfies with famous people. To have the Holy Spirit in you is to be brought to enjoy the Spirit's own intimate communion with the Father and the Son, Romans 5.5. 5. To have the Holy Spirit in you is to have Jesus' personal representative himself. To have the Holy Spirit in you is to, have, is to have a distinguishing mark of a true believer, Paul says. The Holy Spirit dwells in you like you dwell inside your house. He has taken up residence in you. This is his home, and he's not leaving. Jesus says in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, it can also be said that Christ dwells in you. That's what Paul says in verse 10. It also means that the Father dwells in you. It's here in the Trinity that we see this extraordinary ballet of blessing and fullness for the believer. Herman Bovink writes The Father and Christ are one. The Father is in Him, and He is in the Father. And so, in His turn, Christ Himself and all His benefits to the church through the Holy Spirit. He keeps nothing for Himself. Just as the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily, so he also perfects the church unto measure of all the stature of his fullness until it is filled with all the fullness of God. He is all in all. How can we ever think of ourselves the same? As soon as Christ is in us, we are no longer what we once were before. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you normally think of yourself as a Christian in this way? Do you remember who's made his home in you? When sin is crouching at your door, when the devil comes to depress you and discourage you, just remember who dwells in you. When you are aware aware of your inability and aware of your limitations. Cry out to him who is already standing, waiting at the door of your heart. It's such our fallen condition, isn't it, to be aware of what we do not have when we want it? And it's a supernatural miracle of the Spirit in us to be shown all we have already in Christ. Charles Spurgeon says, it is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus we shall never find happiness by looking at our prayer our doings or our feelings it is what Jesus is not who we are that gives rest to our souls when you are attacked by the pull of the flesh when you're hit with temptation is it your first inclination to realize who is in your body or do you just roll over when a serving opportunity is laid before you where you can actually meet someone's needs is your tendency to act out of your limitation or lack of desire i believe that's where most of us are on account of our sin and our minds that can so be can so quickly be tangled we forget who dwells in us we minimize the spirit and grieve him the holy spirit is not some consolation prize like a bonus to put in our sidecar as we cruise through life we we need him flesh and blood cannot do what God requires of us we cannot make our souls live we are a dependent people Jesus himself told his disciples it's to their advantage that he go away because he'd send the helper And little did they know that after he was gone, they would come to know him in a greater capacity and a deeper communion communion than when he was with them. This this led to the church being established and the gospel being proclaimed to the nations. This led to people of God with a profound hope in Christ in life and death. We need the Holy Spirit and we need to remind one another of him in us of how easily we can be unaware of the Spirit in us, we cannot highlight enough in one another the evidence of his work. Think about this. When when you gather together, when you come together in your discipleship huddles, your missional communities with other believers, where there is conviction of sin, victory over sin, where there is humility laying down your life. Where there's joy in the toil and pain, where there's generosity overflowing in the midst of limitations, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. The sweetness of our fellowship is not due to everyone just being really nice. Do you leave this meeting each week loving Jesus more? Do you want to be like him? Do you have this overgrowing passion in your heart when you leave these doors to make him known in the city? That's the Holy Spirit in you, Christian. He is in you so that you might know the Son and that you might be like Him. Another glorious reality of the Christian is that you belong to Christ. Again, in verse 9 in the second half, Paul says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Paul says negatively the point that he's trying to communicate, which is those in the Spirit belong to Christ. You are his possession. And Paul captures this reality again in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. He starts by reminding Christians that their bodies are a temple or a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on to say, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Christian, the price Christ paid for sin in his shed blood was, to one, to make you his own. He bought you and he dwells in you. Is there anything more wonderful? Is this not our great comfort in this life and in death? And this is much different than what we see outside our doors. The way of the world is to find value in, in what you have. Wealth, status, pleasure, power. The Christian's worth is in whose they are. Our safety is in our advocate with the Father who is right now pleading the cause of those who belong to Him. Our joy is in the all-satisfying treasure who loved us and gave Himself for us. The Spirit bears witness with our spirits that this is true, that we belong to Him, that we are His, that we are already in the house. And since we belong to Him, it can also be said that we are united and belong together. Ephesians 2.22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is a purchased people for Christ's possession. Every single benefit and blessing that we enjoy, including being the church, comes to us because we belong to Christ. There is unbreakable security for us in this reality. Christ did not purchase us so that he could lose us. As we sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Whether it is a nagging sin or death itself, Christ will hold fast to his own. You belong to him. You are also Christian. You are alive in Christ. Romans 8.10 but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 10 communicates one way that the Christian is still like the rest of the world. You heard it earlier. We have mortal bodies, corrupt bodies. Since the moment we came into this world, our bodies have been, de- been decaying on account of sin. Even though you are indwelt with Christ, like the world, because of a fallen condition inherited in Adam, you will die. And not only is the body dead in a physical sense, but also a moral sense. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The body is the instrument that sin most readily uses. It is, as it were, the seat of sin. The body gives sin its chance and its opportunity and it remains there in the body. The body is dead, and the culprit is sin. So all with a body receive spiritual death and the seed of a mortal death. But thanks be to God, that is not the whole story for the Christian. Simultaneously true for you is this, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Notice how Paul is speaking in the present tense. He's not speaking... He's not referring to a future redemption, which he will say later on in this chapter. He means the Christian in spirit is alive now. This regeneration is not a work of human strength, but it is a work of God in which he imparts to us new spiritual life. And this is on account of righteousness, a foreign righteousness. Titus 3.5 says God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The righteousness of Christ has attained your life, and the Spirit of Christ in you applies this life now and forever. And we sing that, that wonderful song, Not in Me. And we sing those wonderful words. My righteousness is Jesus' life. That means right now. We don't have to wait until we're with Him in eternity for that to be true. Christ is ours now, and He's made us spiritually alive to Him now. The reality of a Christian is living now. With new spiritual life in this age. With the guarantee of a resurrected physical body when Christ returns. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for we know that if the tent that our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who prepared us for this thing is God who has given us his spirit as a guarantee. The spirit of Christ in you focuses your eyes on what God has done for you in the resurrected Christ. The spirit's work in you now creates a longing for Christ above all else. Only those in the Spirit can say Jesus is Lord. Only those in the Spirit can say to live is Christ and to die is gain. The source of your life is not a fleeting life. It's not one that will run out or fail. No sin or trial can move you back into the realm of death again. Though Your outer man is perishing. Though you feel your strength and energy diminishing the older that you get, your spirit is being renewed and strengthened each day. The life you have in Christ only grows sweeter as eternity draws near. So we can say the Christian life is marked by an indestructible hope because the source of your hope, the source of your joy and security will never die. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says of this spiritual life of the Christian. The true Christian is the only happy man because he has sources of happiness entirely and independent of this world. He has something which cannot be affected by sickness and by death's. By private losses and public calamities, he has the peace of God which transcends all understanding. He has a hope laid up for him in heaven. He has a treasure which moth and rust cannot corrupt. He has a house which can never be torn down. His loving wife may die and his heart feel torn in two. His darling children may be taken from him and he may be left alone in this cold world. His earthly plans may be crossed, his health may fail, but all this time he has a part of him which he can never be hurt. He has a friend who never dies. He has possessions beyond the grave, or which nothing can deprive him. His springs of water on this earth may dry up, but his springs of living water never run dry. This is real happiness. Christ is in you, and He is your constant source of life now. This is eternal life that you know Him, and this is your position, Christian, seated with Him in the heavenly places. Because He lives, you will live. Which is why Paul can say in Romans 8, verse 11, The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Christian, you will be raised with Christ. Again, Paul's aim in this section is to give his readers, to give us assurance and certainty of our final and full salvation. This is a message that begins with there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and ends with in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And God is gracious. He's gracious to communicate to us this glorious reality for the Christian. There is a brilliant harvest that is to come. Our mortal bodies dead because of sin will one day die. But death is not the final word. What is sown is perishable and what is raised is imperishable. There will be a day that your body will no longer be subject to physical decay. It will no longer be tied to the effects of sin. The ultimate destiny of your body is not death, but resurrection. The Christian will at last be completely redeemed. And this resurrection... It's as certain as Christ's resurrection. The reasoning of the text is that if this glorious thing is true, then this absolutely is true. If the one who indwells you raised Christ from the dead, this is a <clears throat> then he will most absolutely do this for you as well. It's a glorious reality. One that cannot be said or celebrated enough. And, and that's why Paul has to say it. If we were just obvious to us that we are immortal beings, we wouldn't struggle. Is this not the battle that we wage each day? Again, Lloyd-Jones says, The Christian knows that he has been delivered. He knows that sin is still there trying to get a foothold in his body again and drag him down. He knows it can never finally defeat him, so he does not cry, O wretched man that I am. He says, rather, the body is dead... It is frail, it is weak, it is decaying. I am subject to tiredness and weariness and accidents and illness and all these things that make life a burden to me as I get older and older. The body is dead, and I have always to fight sin because it tries to find entrance at that point. That is where it tries to get a seat, a fulcrum, it's opportunity. I have this constant war to wage against sin there. But I'm not fighting in a spirit of despair because I know that my spirit is life because of righteousness. There is remaining sin in you, Christian. I'm certain there's more heartache of loss ahead as well. More limitations, more frustrations, more setbacks and failure on the way. But though... You now live in the reality of a body that decays. After death, life eternal. After grieving, fullest joy. After loss, the highest reward. There is a glory to be revealed that will far outweigh any weight of sorrow in this life. Revelation 21 verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Resurrection includes transformation. It's the raising of a new and glorious vessel that is freed from all illness and disability, liberated from pain and decay, absent and incapable of sin, can't even comprehend this with our limitations now of what that will be like. Church, this future glory promised is yours. Notice in this text who the main actors are. We have the resurrecting Father, the resurrected Son, and the Spirit of resurrection. All the fullness of God for you. It is a guaranteed inheritance until you Acquire possession of it. Your citizenship is fixed. Those who have been given such glorious realities, they have an indestructible hope. Those who have been given such glorious realities, they know how to live and die well. In fact, you are being enabled and empowered by resurrection power to live now in preparation for the life that is to come. So, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo you, you, however, you, however, in the Spirit, you, however, with the Spirit of God in you, Christian, you have an indestructible life, and he's seated on his throne, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He's gone before you to prepare a place for you. With his blood that he poured out, he has secured for you glorious realities. He is risen, he is alive, and he will never fail so your hope your hope is not in vain let's pray oh father what a glorious salvation What you have done, what you have done for those who once were hostile to you, those who could not please you, those who would not, did not want to bend the knee and submit to you, For we who were once dead, what glorious things you have done for us in Christ Jesus. And what a glorious future you have guaranteed us in Christ Jesus. Father, we want to live in light of what you say is true of us. We want to live in light of how you see us. And so again, we we cry out as those who still struggle with living in the flesh, minds that can grow so tangled and decepted. Father, we need your help. We need your Spirit. Your Spirit who is in us, who's at work in us, who turns us away from self, shows us the glories of Christ. Father, I would pray for anyone here who is tangled in sin. Just can't shake it. Just weary of fighting. Father, bring relief by your Spirit who is in them. Bring freedom that comes from knowing that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Help them by resurrection power that flows through them so that in all things you may get glory in and through their lives. Father, I pray that this word, this word that you have graciously given to us would take root in us. That it would have its effect in us, that it would not return to you empty, but there would be so much fruit born in the lives of those who received it. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.